Lord, what a privilege it is for us to come together as your people, to have been called out of the world and into the kingdom of light. We pray, Father, that today you would enlighten us even more through your word as we think about life and prepare ourselves for living in this world, that we might do so in a manner that glorifies you and is a blessing to us and to others. So, Father, teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Saw in the email I sent out that this series of lessons I'm going to be doing for the next few weeks is something that I taught uh, ten years ago. I didn't even realize myself it had been that long until I pulled them up and realized it was 2013. And like everything else in a family and life, as the church grows, as we live, as we mature, even that's why we keep reading our Bibles. We don't just read it once, we read it again and again because each time we do we see things, we learn things, because we've changed, not because it's changed. But as we change and we read again, we, we see things we haven't seen before, or we now need and didn't recognize we needed those things before. And so this is just an ongoing process. Um, if you compare that to meals that you have at your house, there were favorites, things we went to over and over. And then those special meals that were new and different, sometimes... Sometimes new and different wasn't all that good, um, but we didn't do those again. But uh, uh, So today we're going to go back through this series on pain and suffering. Uh, we'll cover the subject of grief as we move into this. Um, but today we start uh, with our focus upon the pain and suffering part. And so uh, like everything else, as we learn theology, as we learn what the Bible teaches, we want to start with the foundation, and of course in this case, we have to start with the problem, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, the problem of grief. Um, I, uh, a quote from Helen Keller I thought was good to start with. He said, she said, uh, we bereaved are not alone. We belong to the largest company in all the world, the company of those who have known suffering. Of course, when we're suffering, we feel it most acutely. Uh, and we sometimes can forget that other people, that everybody suffers in different ways at different times and that we are not alone, though we feel alone frequently when we're in the middle of it. John chapter 11, 33 through 36, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible says so much. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Suffering and sorrow are common to humanity, but what does it mean and how do we face it? When we feel pain, of course, it gets all of our attention. This is true of physical pain. This is true of emotional pain. C.S. Lewis, in his book, I was rereading this in the last few weeks, his book, The Problem of Pain, and this really jumped out at me. He said, lay down this book and reflect for five minutes on the fact that all the great religions were first preached and long practiced 
in a world without chloroform, without painkillers. It is, he's driving home the reality of pain, the reality of suffering. Uh, it is essential then that we come to see our pains and sorrows from a biblical perspective. We need to say, what, is, what, is, what does this mean? What is it for? What is its purpose? What does God say about it? And so to get some sense of what God is up to. So pain and sorrow are one of the ways that God speaks to us and one of the ways that he works in us. Paul Miller wrote in his book, A Praying Life, when confronted with suffering that won't go away or even in a minor problem, we instinctively focus on what is missing, not on the master's hand. Often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you're in the middle of a story. And if you watch the stories God is weaving in your life, you will begin to see patterns and you, uh, you'll become a poet sensitive to your father's voice. A.W. Pink remarked that afflictions are light when compared uh, with what we really deserve. They are light when compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps their real lightness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which awaits us. That's the comparison Scripture makes. These are light, Paul says, compared to the weight of glory. So in this series of lessons, we'll not only examine the subject of pain and suffering in a general way, but more specifically, we want to see, of course, what the Bible teaches about sorrow and grief. So let's look at pain and suffering. Pain and suffering are inevitable in a fallen world. Everyone here has suffered and has felt pain. They're the common condition of all people everywhere, in every time, and in every place. There are no exceptions, because to be human uh, is to face the issue of pain and suffering. We know that some aspects of pain are good. The ability to feel physical pain warns us away from things that would harm us or kill us. So the, the pain of a flame uh, would... Uh, I have this... My dad took a video of my little brother who was five years younger, and it's part of our family videos, his first birthday, and that one candle on the cake that he stuck his finger in twice, but not the third time. But lots of tears, because that pain teaches you don't do that. And much of the pain that we feel and suffering we feel, physical and emotional, is designed to teach us to stop. Just don't do that anymore. The pain of guilt, for example, is there to teach us to stop. Um, modern medicine, uh, well, let me back up, I'm getting ahead of myself. Pleasure is the carrot and pain is the stick that moves us through life. So our suffering is due in the first place, to our mortality. We are all born to die. From the moment we draw our first breath of life, it is a losing battle against the aging process that sooner or later ends in death. Um, modern medicine has made enormous strides in prolonging life expectancy in the West. Uh, therefore, it is, it's much higher than even a generation ago. I remember going up to old Washington, Arkansas, the old cemetery there, it is just filled with the graves of babies and children. And you don't see that as much. Certainly we have children that die, but not 
at that level. I mean, it was just commonplace. That's true here at Oak Grove Cemetery um, as well. So, um, but medical care is at best a stay of execution. Inevitably, we all die. Uh, look at the greatest athletes. Think of the most fit person you know, and it's going to happen to them as well. For what is your life, James 4.14? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. So moreover, death isn't a simple uh, transition from one sphere to another. It is usually and closely associated with pain. Often its arrival is preceded by disease of varying degrees of painfulness. Sometimes it comes by accident or violence. Uh, In that case, the pain is felt most acutely by those who are left behind to face the shock of a sudden bereavement. Death inevitably means for most of us pain and tears and sorrows and shattered lives. Now, again, I know today's lesson in particular is kind of, well, this is depressing. But, you know, it's depressing, but in order for us to get to the place of understanding and remedy and joy, we have to we have to deal with this on the front end, so just a reminder of that. The catalog of human suffering is long and intense. Uh, in all this, there is a major factor which makes suffering even more intense than animal suffering. And that is that we, as made in, being made in the image of God and being self-conscious, can anticipate pain. Um, we might ask, uh, if somebody's going to get a shot, is this going to hurt? We, we anticipate what is coming. We discover that we have some incurable disease, but we also know others who have suffered intensely from this same kind of illness, and we can easily deduce what our prospects are. And this anticipation of pain, this mental anguish, uh, which can accompany the actual pain when it comes, are both accentuated by our desire for life uh, and, uh, and, and for health. We don't want that. We, don't, we, we avoid it at all costs. And so a person wants to live and his, inner, uh, his excuse me, a person wants to live, his instinct is, of course, our instinct is self-preservation, and that is strongly developed, and yet we know that we're going to die. But there are further acute problems which arise when we begin to reflect on suffering. For one thing, the degree of suffering often seems to bear no relation to the quality of the sufferer's life. A ruthless criminal evades the law and enjoys a healthy life in luxurious surroundings while a nurse is injured in a car accident and spends the rest of her days totally paralyzed. That's, you kind of see this in the Psalms where you'll see the psalmist complaining about, it sure looks like the wicked are doing better than me, uh, that they're prospering and I'm not. To the onlooker, it seems a cruel world where justice has no bearing on what really happens. Um, Then again, there's the great inequality in the quota of suffering borne by different individuals. One person lives a long, healthy life with a happy family and a successful career. Another one faces debilitating illness, the loss of a child, or the collapse of his career. Why? That's the question we all want to ask. Uh, so we say, um, su- such we say is life, but we can't shrug off the, insist- the insistent question, 
which presses upon us. Why the inequity of suffering? Why does this family bear the brunt while others seem to be completely unscathed? Why does one country enjoy high standards of living and life and security while another is devastated by floods or disease or war? And if others ask why in the face of pain, the Christian's why often goes deeper. It's our faith which presents us with the hard questions, though paradoxically it's the same faith which furnishes us with the answers. We believe in a God who is all good, who is almighty. But if God is almighty, and as so the argument runs, why does he permit men to hurt and destroy one another? Why does he allow them to suffer? If he's all good, then surely he'll use his almighty power to avert the pain and the suffering which are the blight of humanity. Isn't that what you would do when you take away all the pain and all the suffering? An atheist in a godless world really has no questions to ask, though. Let me point that out. Because he has no answers either. In other words, in that world, pain and suffering have no meaning whatsoever, really. Uh, if we are but evolving matter in motion, so what? Pain and suffering have no ultimate moral content in that world. They are just perhaps, and even this is a stretch, evolutionary tools of survival, but that's invoking some kind of value judgment that survival is a good thing. Why would you want to survive in a world full of pain and suffering? So the human heart cries out for an answer which reaches down to those who suffer in sorrow with a word which brings some hope in a world of despair. The old Stoic philosophy of a grim, unyielding despair in the face of a buffeting fate may sound like a noble idea, ideal, but in fact it is a bleak and cold message without meaning. The idea of just grin and bear it. Why? It may sustain some, but it only sustains them in a numbed hopelessness. If there is no God, then we are only left with a cosmic, so what? Your suffering and pain has no meaning in that world. As believers, we don't know everything. We can't know everything. So we always have to start with what we do know. Here's what we know. God is all good. God is all powerful. Pain and suffering exist. Therefore, therefore, God must have a morally justifiable reason for the pain and suffering that exist. Now that solves the logical problem. Doesn't necessarily solve the psychological problem. And C.S. Lewis points that out as he begins his book on pain. Uh, He says, uh, I'm going to write this book. I was asked to write it. It's a theological book, but I assure you, I I don't live up to this standard. When I'm the one that's suffering, when I'm the one in pain, these are the things I need to know and remember, and I haven't learned all these things yet. So there's this gap between saying, okay, I understand. God's all good. God's all powerful. Evil exists, and he has a reason for it. But I want to know what the reason is. And sometimes your children are that way when you tell them to do something and they don't understand you. And you know it's what's good for them, but they don't perceive it that way. They think you're being mean or harsh or something else. 
when in fact you are able to see a much bigger picture and to uh, recognize that they are not capable of understanding. That's, that's what happened. We're going to look more closely when we get to Job, but that's what we see in the case of Job. God's at work. Job doesn't understand it. He wants to know why. And in essence, God says, uh, like, you, like you would to a little child, I've got you. Uh, trust me. And you remember what Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Um, not sure where. I didn't move. That wasn't me. Um, so we must admit that we don't have the final and complete answer. So let's begin there. The answers we have bring some comfort, but they, bring, they also leave some mystery. There are still unyielding psychological problems to which our response is, I don't understand, but I thank God I can trust my Heavenly Father. How true Paul's words are in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part. Uh, and so, I want to just mention this morning, what, there are some reasons that we do understand that do explain pain and suffering, but this won't cover everything, but let's just review and think about theologically what the Bible tells us. So we began our attempt to answer the problem of pain and suffering by looking at some areas of pain and suffering where the issue is reasonably clear. There are broad categories that help us sort some of this out. And so there are different kinds of pain and suffering and different degrees of pain and suffering. First, there is the self-inflicted kind. Uh, The category of pain and suffering where an individual bears direct responsibility and can in no way blame their creator. In these these cases, uh, we can connect the dots. Um, If a person is promiscuous and ends up with a diseased body or insanity, they are responsible. Be sure your sins will find you out. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And we have all know things in our own life that we felt pain and suffering because of something we did. Something we did to ourselves. Something we, that was foolish or sinful or both. Second, there is uh, pain and suffering that's inflicted by the sins of others. Um, and so... Um, where at first sight the issues aren't so plain, it's one thing to say uh, that it is a person's own fault if he wrecks his own body, but what about the sufferings which come to others as a result of his selfishness? Um, The alcoholic might destroy himself, but at the wheel of a car he might also maim or kill others. So now, again, we're back to the issue of sin in a fallen world. Uh, then there are those who sin in other ways. The, uh, the innocent in one situation uh, himself becomes himself the selfish exploiter in another. So while my pain, while pain, uh, my pain might, uh, and suffering might not be a direct result of cause and effect, nevertheless, I'm a sinner in a fallen world that is full of sinners, and there's a correlation between that general truth and my personal pain and suffering. In Adam's fall, we send all. And what about natural disasters, so-called? It's clearly independent of human agency. The tornado, the volcano, earthquake, hurricane, tsunami, these are are not precipitated by man's activity, though uh, global... I want to swap out the mics here. Okay. 
See if I sound like Roy. All right, that may not be in the right spot. We'll give that a try. So back to earthquakes, tsunamis. These are uh, not precipitated by man's activity, but they cause immense suffering. And Paul draws this connection in Romans 8, 18 through 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Remember, the earth was cursed, so sin impacted our environment, uh, and, and things changed. And so some of this that we see is, again, the product of the fall. I think we take the fall too lightly, both personally and corporately. Then there's what we think of as accidents, the tragic accidents which are not connected to human willfulness. It may be because of a mechanical failure in a car or maybe due to human frailty and the miscalculation of a driver or a pilot. Uh, But in these and innumerable similar cases, people are surely not personally culpable, but we would still say these are the results of a fallen and broken world. And then birth and death. Uh, At the time of birth and sometimes at the time of death, pain and suffering come without any known cause. In one case, Jesus gives this explanation in John 9. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. They're looking for, like we do, cause and effect. And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So there's another, uh, the Bible is revealing to us that it might not be what you think. God may have some other purpose in this otherwise tragic situation. But in most cases, we are left without an explanation. I say direct explanation because we're not left with no explanation. Remember, there are many things that God has revealed about himself and about the world and about uh, us, about history, and about the future. So we know in principle certain things. But behind it all, again, is the fall. Sin wrecked paradise. Our first approach to these great problems is to note this one basic fact in the human situation, and that is the reality of the spiritual catastrophe described in Genesis 3, in which we call the fall. Genesis 3.16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Genesis 3.17-19, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now another aspect is Satan, who is real. Uh, this uh, This great act of disobedience by our first parents is set in the wider context of the rebellion of Satan and his angels against the supreme authority of God. This is cosmic warfare. 
uh, there is pain and suffering and warfare. Indeed, the disobedience of Adam and Eve may be viewed as their capitulation to the enemy involving them not only in his rebellion, but in its terrible consequences. Thus, the fall is an event in human history and also part of a moral catastrophe of cosmic proportions. It's not, therefore, surprising to discover the unending ramifications of that disaster. There is, of course, the primary consequence, namely man's alienation from God and from this condition, so many sad consequences flow. To be in communion with God is to know the Creator, to know as a result His gracious purpose for creation. So in Genesis 2, Adam shares with his Creator in the naming of the animals and also in the appreciation of an environment which was not hostile but friendly. Indeed, in God's own words, it was all very good. But alienated from God, mankind is darkened. He knows neither God nor God's laws for himself or for the created order. And before, he, before, he's been told to replenish the earth and subdue it, but subjection of, the nature, uh, of nature for man's use requires divinely given wisdom. Left to the impoverished thinking of his fallen condition, man can no longer control his own greed, and so he exploits rather than subjects nature and thus destroys both the earth around him and also his fellows, his neighbors. But man's rebellion also opened the door for the dominion of Satan. The fallen spirit who rebelled against the Lord became the prince of this world. The world created by God was invaded by by an alien force so that John can say the whole world lies in the evil one. Thus God in his word of judgment in Eden speaks of the enmity of Satan to the woman an enmity seen supremely in his hostility toward Christ, who was born of a woman, but also to all the sons and daughters of Eve. This enmity lies behind so much of the misery and suffering, which seems to be inexplicable. That Satan is active in his malevolent work is seen in the book of Job, though it is reassuring to see that his dominion is still within limits imposed by God. He doesn't have unlimited power. So the Lord in his wisdom and for reasons he's not disclosed to us has allowed Satan a measure of dominion, but he is always subject to the supreme dominion of God. And yet even, and again, you think of Joseph's story. You intended it for evil, God intended it for good. So God even overrides evil, which includes often pain and suffering. So even within these circumscribed limits, Satan can still wreak havoc, And so he is seen behind the loss of Job's family and property and behind the sickness and pain on Job's own body. And in the same way, Jesus speaks of the woman who was bent with some disease as one, quote, whom Satan bound for 18 years. And when Paul speaks of the exclusion of the offender from church fellowship as delivering him to Satan, it means that he's subject to the activity of the devil who will destroy him physically though mercifully can't touch him spiritually. So once again, we see the evil power which Satan wields, and Paul himself knew that reality when he spoke of the thorn in his flesh. Whatever that affliction may have been, he described it as a messenger of Satan to harass me. However, 
however you interpret Revelation 20, one thing is quite clear. The loosing of Satan leads to the deceiving of the nations and to war. So behind the lust and greed and cruelty of men, which lead to the unending catalog of suffering and misery, there lies this other dark shadow. There is this figure who lurks in the background, who deceives men into carrying out his purposes, and whose supreme ambition is to cause misery and unhappiness to men who, though fallen, still bear the hated image of their Creator. But the word of solemn, solemn judgment in Eden not only spoke of the, uh, of the impairment of man and the dominion of Satan, it also declared a curse on the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you, because of your sin. So even the created order has been deeply affected by the consequences of Satan's rebellion and Adam's sin. Now, the world as we know it is not the harmonious structure which came fresh from the hand of God and over which the refrain was repeated, it is very good. Instead, there is a discord which has affected the fabric of creation, the functioning of nature, the pattern of animal and human life. So we have savage and destructive elements in nature which manifest themselves. Again, whether it's in earthquakes or floods, we have nature that's described as red in tooth and claw, uh, with one species preying on another, and we have malarial mosquitoes and disease-carrying germs. We have, in short, a creation in a state of deep discord, and the consequences of that discord reverberate in every corner of life. Well, that was pleasant, wasn't it? Well, let me end this morning uh, with an upbeat note, and we will move into this in future lessons to look at this in more detail. And that is our hope is ultimately in that goodness, in that sovereignty of God. If this were the end of the story, then it would be a prescription for un- unmitigated despair, but it is far from the final condition of things. The time and the travail will end. There will be, in Peter's words, 2 Peter 3.13, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's the New Testament echo of the prophecy of Isaiah from Isaiah 11.6-9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So much packed in there. Admittedly, this still leaves great questions unanswered, To say that the present discord in creation is the judgment of God still means that the pain and the suffering which flow from that discord flow ultimately from the eternal judge. But then we must acknowledge that with our finite minds and with minds so darkened by sin that we can't and indeed we dare not question the justice of God Almighty. You know, we're not going to in the end get there and say, boy, God really made a mistake. God didn't know what he was doing. We're going to say amen. Abraham's question still stands as a true affirmation of faith. Genesis 18, 25. 
Shall not the judge of the earth do right? That's, a, that's one of the things that we can stand on and rest in. I don't understand this, but shall not the judge of the earth do right? And so, if this is God's sentence, we must bow before his sovereign wisdom. We'll learn in such submission to grasp, in some small measure, the infinite horror of sin, which has often wrought the havoc. And we'll also learn the wonder of God's answer to that sin, which is the redemption of Christ that will not only embrace all the elect of God, but ultimately the universe. So the gospel is going to be the beginning, the beginning of the resolution. It gives us hope. It gives us promise. It gives us healing. It gives us comfort. The Spirit does that. The Word does that. God's people do that for us. So the pain and the suffering are real, but but we're not left without hope. We grieve, but not like those without hope. The world just grieves. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they function. Um, I, I know in some cases there's all kinds of things people do to try to numb that grief and that sorrow and that pain because it has no real meaning. I want to end with just, uh, I've got four quotes here I want to read to just continue to kind of set the table. Uh, two from C.S. Lewis. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. And that's from his book, The Problem of Pain, and from his book, A Grief Observed. We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are, they, are those who mourn, and I accept it. I've, not, I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality and not imagination. Elizabeth Elliot, our vision is so limited we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of a different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. The cross was the proof of his love, that he gave that son, that he let him go to Calvary's cross, though legions of angels might have rescued him. He will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into that process. And then from Jerry Bridges' uh, book that I love, uh, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, um, he says, That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and He brings or allows, uh, and He brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for His glory and for our good. And so I think that kind of helps set the table here to get some perspective. And remember, a lot of this is it because we're fallen, because we don't think clearly, because we don't understand apart from God's revelation, 
we look at things and we, we start trying to make sense of it and draw conclusions and we're left shrugging our shoulders, uh, bewildered or in despair. And that's why God gave his word. That's why he has told us some of the things that we need to know to be able to bear this, interpret this, uh, get through this, and help others do so. And so that's what we want to continue to look at in this series is more and more how, how we do this together. And again, I'll emphasize we do this together. Uh, that's another important reason we are in the body of Christ. There aren't any words. There's nothing usually, you know, sometimes if it's a minor pain, you can, you know, mama can kiss it and it feels better instantly. Uh, that's a, but that is a picture of what we're talking about on a simple level. But when the pain is great and the injury is deep, it takes more than a simple kiss. It's going to take a lot of nurturing and a lot of care and a lot of love. And think about what God does. Many of you I know have cared for uh, parents and others, who uh, loved ones who've suffered and sick. And uh, it is deeply, deeply painful. And I admire you, those I know you. I know the hours and the heart uh, anguish and the tears and the fatigue. Think about all that you gave. Why? Because you loved. And that was a place where this love is shown most intensely. I'm just saying this is one example of how God is not just at work in the immediate suffering of this person, but also in what he's doing with other people, both to serve them and also, isn't it ironic that sometimes the people who are suffering the most physically end up ministering to others in the process. And so there's a lot going on that we don't see on the surface, and we just that's where we begin. And as time goes on, and we're able to see it in some deeper perspective, oftentimes we begin to realize things God was doing that we didn't see in the moment, whether he was doing them in us or in that other person or in the world or to some neighbor or to someone else who was impacted by that. I, could, I know all of you could tell stories. I could all day of people I know who've gone through great trials and great suffering, and then I've watched how that has benefited others in many, many ways and been a blessing. And again, as, as uh, Joseph said to his own brothers, you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. And so all of Joseph's suffering, mental and physical, ended up being a blessing to many, preserved many people alive. So perspective is always essential in almost every aspect of our life, seeing it the way God sees it, trusting him in the areas where we can't see but and standing on the things we do know. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for your spirit, for your people, and for your promises, for hope, and for the gospel. Lord, help us as we work through this study to trust you, to uh, uh, to indeed embrace the things that you've revealed so that we do have things we know and can stand on, and uh, comfort our hearts. We pray you be today, even now, with those who are suffering. Uh, and that you might uh, give them faith and courage and, and hope, and that we might also demonstrate the love of Christ to them. Bless us now as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.